I think there's that classic question, do you eat to live or live to eat? And I am definitely, I've always been on the live to eat side of that spectrum. And for a long time, I didn't really know anything about the relationship between food intolerances and our immune system. Yeah, there's a lot of hot metal flying across the kitchen and a lot of bad batters and uh, half-formed pasta and cakes and breads going right into the trash in those days. This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. It went from having Hashimoto's and I developed Meniere's disease. And then from then on, I really have not been able to eat any gluten. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. One time, not long ago, I was in the kitchen washing dishes, listening to a documentary on the radio. The documentary was about a man who had tinnitus, or tinnitus, depending on how you pronounce it. Either way, tinnitus is described as a ringing in the ear. But it's not always a ringing. It can be a whooshing sound, like the ocean, or a roaring, or a clicking, or buzzing, or a soft whistle. For some people, it's constant. For others, it comes and it goes. Tinnitus happens when you hear a sound, but that thing you hear, it actually isn't there. It's an illusion of sound. Normally, when you hear an actual sound, the sound wave hits your ear and travels up the auditory nerve from the inner ear to the brain, where it's going to be processed as sound. When you're hearing things that aren't there, as in the case with tinnitus, it's a sign there's a disconnect somewhere along the auditory path. I have tinnitus in my left ear. My sound is sometimes loud, sometimes soft. I like to call the sound soft ocean with a touch of squeal. Sometimes my left ear is also clogged. When this is the case, the clogging makes my soft ocean more of an ocean roar or a stormy sea. Sometimes I have vertigo. It feels like the bed spins without the memory of that fun night before. The combination of these things, tinnitus, clogging, and vertigo, equals Meniere's disease. Over the years, I've sought different types of treatment for Meniere's. Medication, rest, diet, calm thoughts. It's a process, and no one really understands the disease, which makes it hard to treat. But I'm lucky. I have a mild case. Some people with Meniere's lose their hearing completely or have constant vertigo. Treatments vary, but they all seem like a shot in the dark to me. All this to say, I turned my good ear to the radio when tinnitus was being discussed. What I heard, something I hadn't heard before, was a man sharing the positive side of having tinnitus. The people that have come into his life, the books he has read, the beauty of what he can hear, despite the ringing. As I washed the dishes, I could hear Maria Von Trapp's voice in my head as she consoled a broken-hearted Liesel. Reverend Mother always says, when the Lord closes a door, somewhere he opens a window. It's true. Good things happen from adversity. We just have to look out the window and see what's out there. Today on the Food Podcast, I'll talk with Erin Goyugoaga, photographer, stylist, and creator of the blog Canel et Vanille, and Paul Graham, author of the memoir In Memory of Bread. Both learned they could no longer eat gluten well after their lives had been shaped by the stuff. We'll explore how these two dealt with the closing of that door and find out what was outside their windows. 
It's a discovery of food, memory, adversity, and identity. Today on The Food Podcast. It was the spring of 2013 when the vertigo really started to set in. I was on a diuretic and carried anti-nausea pills in my pocket. If I caught the spins in time, all would be all right. If not, it was puke city. My neighbor, Carrie, was worried. She's a holistic nutritionist and put me on an anti-inflammatory diet. The hope was to rid inflammation in my inner ear that was perhaps causing the imbalance. I was desperate, so a month or so of figuring out what my body found inflammatory was welcomed. And after some trial and error, I made some discoveries. Cutting dairy, gluten, and sugar in moderation calmed my symptoms. I felt in control, and I felt better. And who knows really what helped me most? Was it time, change of season, no bread? I don't really know, but I began to feel better. And through it all, I continued to Google things like Meniere's diets, foods to avoid, foods to embrace. I love the notion that something I could control, like food choices, could help me. My Google search results were all a bit clinical until Aaron's site Canale Vanille popped up. It was beautiful. I remember a gray palette, that soft fog of the Pacific Northwest, studded with evergreens and a recipe reflecting the flavors of her new home. Erin and her family had just moved to Seattle from Florida, where she had worked as a pastry chef, had had two kids, started a blog, Canale Vanille, and wrote a cookbook. As I read, I learned that in December of 2005, Erin was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and in 2009 developed Meniere's disease. In late 2009, she started living gluten-free. I dove into her site, into her recipes, her Instagram feed, her story. Erin also taught food photography workshops from time to time. Always summer fabulous, always selling out in minutes. I was entering the photography world at the time. I was slowly discovering how to use my own images to tell stories. And I didn't know how to use a real camera then. I knew so little, I didn't even know what I didn't know. Late that summer, I received a notification that her upcoming workshop had an opening. It would be in the Basque Country, where Erin is from, and co-hosted by Nadia Doyle, a beautiful cook, stylist, and workshop host from Vermont. I jumped at the chance before I'd even thought about it, and I got in. The workshop was incredible. And whenever I think about that week in the Basque Country, surrounded by intense beauty and generous, talented people from all over the world, and the friends I made and the skills I learned, I can't help but think of discovering Erin as a big, huge window being flung open, even while that ocean sound swirled in my ear. I've often wondered about Erin. She grew up in the Basque Country, across the street from her grandparents' pastry shop. She later became a pastry chef. Then she discovered that gluten was the root of her health problems. How did she handle that massive change in her life, her livelihood, her identity? Just how intricately was gluten woven into her family's story and her story? My grandparents opened their pastry shop in 19... 19- 
49. It was all consuming. Both my grandfather and my grandmother worked there. All I remember is just everybody being there all the time. I grew up across the street from it. So my mom worked front of the house and then my grandfather and my uncles worked in the actual pastry shop kitchen. All I know is just everybody was always cooking something. Whether it was pastry or big meals to feed the whole family. It was comfort food. Not the same as like American comfort food, but stews and soups and that kind of cooking was what I grew up with. And I participated in some ways, although I was never really contributing to what was being sold in the shop, but I was always delivering pastries or peeling things or that kind of environment. Being one of the oldest grandchildren, because it was I think 25 of us grandkids. Can't you picture it? A big, warm hive of activity, all the family playing a role, weaving in and out of the place, a place that revolved around community and taste and creativity. But tapping into that creative side would have to wait. What did Aaron decide to do instead? Well, I studied business and economics in Bilbao. I went to university there. When I was growing up, cooking was not a glamorous thing like it might be now. It was really blue-collar, working-class type of job. But my grandfather was a true artist in his craft. I do think that, but it was never considered that way. It was never considered an artistic or any kind of job like that. So they encouraged me to go to university and study something that maybe perhaps would be a little bit more sophisticated, that it would allow me to travel. So I did that, but I hated it. I was not very good at it, which was not like me because I was always a very good student with good grades and really perfectionist, but I didn't thrive in that environment because I didn't love what I was studying. So when I graduated from university in Bilbao, I had an American boyfriend, so I ended up coming to hang out with him for a while. And then we ended up getting married, so I stayed. And when I stayed in the U.S., then I realized I really missed the connection that I felt with my family and food and baking was that connection to them. And so I ended up enrolling in pastry school in Florida and then took from there. And I worked at the same time as going to school. And so it accelerated pretty fast. And so that was kind of my trajectory into food. But then she became pregnant with her son and life began to change. I was working as a pastry chef and then I got pregnant with my son. I worked until I was about seven months pregnant and then I realized that it was just impossible. To be successful as a chef, you really have to work so hard. There's a lot of conversation about women in food and how far they can take their careers, especially if they're mothers. And I think the truth is, unless it's your own business and you have that flexibility, it's very difficult. They're not very compatible, those two lives. So I quit, but I was not either a stay-at-home mom person, and I think that's a very difficult job to do. And so I, I missed my time cooking professionally, but I couldn't imagine going back. And financially, it didn't make any sense because you make no money cooking professionally. So then I just started looking for ways to create recipes and share them. I don't think it's enough to just cook, or at least for me, it wasn't. There, there really has to be an audience. And so I started a blog with no intention other than to share these things that I was making at home with my family back in the Basque Country. I didn't even know anybody in between me and my family would ever get involved or read this thing. And so that's kind of how it started. And then I realized, hey, I love waking up in the morning and making recipes and taking pictures and writing about it. So I became really disciplined with something that wasn't even a job. I wasn't making any money, but it was kind of uh, something to do that I loved doing. There's a point on Aaron's site Canale Vanille, early on, when there's a shift to gluten-free recipes, 
It's not advertised as such. I've never gotten the impression that Erin was a gluten-free cook. Her food, it's just good food, beautiful food. But if you're paying attention, you'll see a change in baking ingredients. Buckwheat flour, brown rice flour, amaranth flour, cornstarch. Erin says in hindsight there were many signs of gluten intolerance throughout her childhood. She says she was always constipated as a child, and through her teens, she suffered from migraines and depressed and foggy moments. Later, when she began working as a pastry chef, she had a lot of anxiety and went through an eating disorder. All things that can be stress-related and aggravated by diet. So then when I got pregnant, then I really got very sick. And I developed Hashimoto's, just autoimmune thyroid disease. And for a long time, I didn't really know anything about the relationship between food intolerances and our immune system. And so I think when my son was about a year and a half, I took gluten away from my diet for a while. And I felt better. I remember all my antibodies went down for my thyroid. Later, on a trip to Europe, she ate bread again and felt fine, so she continued. She says she felt good. It all seemed okay until she got pregnant with her daughter. And then that's when it all kind of went crazy. So I think my genetic predisposition and my intolerance combined with like suppressed immune system. It went from having Hashimoto's and I developed Meniere's disease. And then from then on, I really have not been able to eat any gluten because it's immediate, like three days after I eat it, then I start feeling all the symptoms come. So I've been gluten-free for over six years. So that's Aaron's background, the closing of the gluten door. But before we peek through Aaron's window, let's meet Paul Graham, a writer and English professor from upstate New York and author of the memoir In Memory of Bread. Paul was diagnosed with celiac disease four years ago at the age of 36. Celiac disease is different from Meniere's and Hashimoto's. For those with celiacs, eating gluten triggers an immune response in your small intestine. Over time, this reaction damages your small intestine's lining and prevents absorption of some nutrients. The intestinal damage can cause diarrhea, fatigue, weight loss, bloating, and anemia. His book dives deeply into the realities of modern agriculture and the state of our food system today. But through it all, Paul also shares his own story of his illness, the devotion of his wife, saying goodbye to his favorite foods and his favorite hobbies, and hello to a new way of eating. I think there's that classic question, do you eat to live or live to eat? And I am definitely, I've always been on the live to eat side of that spectrum, way over on the end of that spectrum, I think. And it's absolutely true, the activities that I gathered with friends to do very often involved food, and they also involved beer. I was an avid home brewer for a very long time. My friend David and I, we were making our move slowly but surely from using kits, because you can buy homebrew kits, to going to all grain and sprouting our on grain and saccharizing it ourselves. That's Paul from his office at St. Lawrence University in upstate New York. I picked up his book late last summer while strolling through my local bookstore. It was the cover that caught me, a white jacket with golden breadcrumbs scattered across the front. The crumbs form the shape of a slice of bread, but the slice itself, it isn't there. It's a memory. That memory is key. Paul raises an interesting question in the book. If your memories revolve around food... A sweet, woven bread eaten every Christmas, for example. What happens to the memory if you can no longer activate it through taste? Does it fade away, like Marty McFly's family photo in Back to the Future? 
To keep memories alive, Paul tried in vain to recreate his favorite gluten-rich foods using gluten-free substitutions. It wasn't an immediate success. Yeah, there was a lot of hot metal flying across the kitchen and a lot of bad batters and uh, half-formed pasta and cakes and breads going right into the trash in those days because you really do want to repeat history. You want to eat the same things, or at least I did anyway. I wanted to eat the same things at the same time of year. I wanted to eat the same things with the same people. And after I was diagnosed with celiac disease and my body was healed enough for me to be able to, to tolerate things again, I did. I tried to just make substitutions. There's this expectation and also a promise, I think, from certain producers that cup for cup really exists. And by that, they mean you can take a cup of gluten-free flour and expect it to behave exactly like wheat flour. And that's just not true. You can come close, but you really do need to do things with a lot of recipes in a way that is perhaps counterintuitive, in a way that you never would have thought of before. If you don't do those things, you're going to have some bad experiences in the kitchen. I just tried to carry on as I always had, and it did not go well. I ruined a lot of crepes. I tried I tried to make ravioli. That was a disaster. I tried to make fresh pasta. That was awful. In time, I did figure these things out. But your relationship to memory and your relationship to your past, that changes a little bit when you make those really severe dietary changes. It begs the question, are our memories meant to be exact? Are they a perfectly measured cup of flour smoothed over with the flat side of a knife? Can we replicate them cup for cup? every time we taste a food from our past? Or perhaps memories are meant to be an overflowing spoonful, not precise, a little unclear, maybe even a little messy. Welcoming messiness is the problem here. So much of cooking, especially baking, is about science and precision. It makes it hard to be free-flowing. Erin worked as a pastry chef at the Ritz-Carlton, and she says she had to work with a ruler in her hand. When I was a pastry chef and we were setting up for Sunday brunch, for example, at the Ritz-Carlton where I worked, everything had to be perfect. There was no room for imperfection. Every entremet that we cut was cut with a ruler. Everything was lined up perfectly, like symmetry was really important. However, it was that training and precision that actually helped Erin through her transition into baking without gluten. She says she didn't have a moment of crisis when she was diagnosed. There weren't hot pans flying through the kitchen. She also thanks a good friend for this smooth entry into the world of alternative recipe development. Back when Erin was working as a pastry chef, her friend's son was diagnosed with autism and they experimented with his diet as a form of treatment. She encouraged Erin to do the same. I remember thinking, oh, that's for hippies or, you know, that's like not me, what I'm doing in my world of like chefy and all these like French chefs and all this like very technical stuff and which I was really interested the science of it and then it's funny she was sort of my window into this new world and if I hadn't had her maybe I wouldn't have been able to assimilate that relationship as early on or like take it as oh yeah this works because I see that people are doing it that it actually works so I don't think I had a moment of crisis. In fact, I was really excited because it was kind of dabbled with whole grain flours that were naturally gluten-free, and then I used them in conjunction with gluten-containing flours. And so it was really exciting that I could do this because nobody else was doing it, I thought, in a way that was also very technical. Like somebody that had a pastry background working kind of high-end restaurants and and doing this thing. So I was really excited. But it doesn't mean Erin wasn't still tapping into memory. She always has. The name Canale Vanille was chosen because cinnamon and vanilla are the smells and tastes of her childhood. 
that and yeast. You know, there's two things that I remember. There's the smell of yeast. It was a pastry shop, so they never made bread. In baking, there's the bread baker and then there's the pastry. So my family, they were really pastry oriented, but they did make brioche and they make these buns that were sweet yeast buns and uh, croissants and all that stuff. And I miss the smell of fermenting yeast, which I can recreate now. You know, I can still make yeast products, but I do miss that smell. And then the smell of cinnamon and vanilla, which is why my blog is called Canel Vanille, simmering in milk. And luckily that's gluten-free. But just like that smell of rice pudding that my grandmother used to make those, and I can still eat that. And the, that's probably my strongest memory of my upbringing is those two smells. The pages of Canel and Vanilla are filled with nostalgia. But nostalgia isn't the same as lament. I think of lament as a memory filled with sorrow and grief, while nostalgia is more wistful and affectionate. Paul says his initial days, months, year perhaps, after being diagnosed with celiac disease, left him frustrated, tired, and at times angry. He says he was not only struggling to replicate his food memories, he was trying so hard to make sure that life would stay exactly the same as it was before his diagnosis. He was determined that he and his wife, Beck, who had chosen to become gluten-free with Paul as an act of solidarity, could walk down the street in Burlington, their closest favorite food city, and spontaneously pop into restaurants. He could still dream about food the way he always had. He could make and eat what he pleased. There's a passage in the book that perfectly sums up this situation. My problem, as a brutally honest friend told me not long after that weekend in Vermont, wasn't just that I was a celiac. Plenty of people with celiac disease ate safely at restaurants all over the country without crying foul. No, my problem was twofold. I was a very sensitive celiac, one whose entire body melted down when he got glutened instead of just breaking into a skin rash like the lucky ones. When you thought about it, I had no business putting myself in a chef's hands at all. The second bigger problem was that I was a sensitive celiac with ideas. I had done a little too much reading, watched a little too much food TV. I thought too hard about what I ate, how I should find it, how it should taste, be presented, and sourced. I had a philosophy of eating that was poorly matched to, how could my friend put it, my digestive realities. Couldn't I just chill out, eat some oily fried rice or bad tacos, maybe bottom feed on a chain restaurant's overcooked gluten-free pasta or desiccated baked potato for a night, learn to forget all of these ideas about gourmet serendipity, and go into the next trip with an ironclad plan? Wouldn't that be better than bitching about it? Yes, probably. And yes, I could do that. Paul told me, just before he read that passage from the book, That to be a person with celiac disease or some other serious sensitivity to gluten is to walk into a restaurant and be reminded of exactly who you are. Because you can only have two things on the menu. But bear in mind, that excerpt was the halfway point in the book. Time passed and Paul figured it out. He discovered rice-based cuisines like Southeast Asian and Southern Indian an authentic Mexican cuisine with cornflour tortillas in the myriad flavors that are piled on top. And he discovered buckwheat. Buckwheat is an unfortunately named product. It sounds strong. It sounds off-putting. I don't know. It conjures thoughts of antlers or something like that. But it's technically an herb, and it's wonderful. 
You can do all kinds of things with it that you can't do as well, I think, with other gluten-free flours. Like, for instance, uh, you can make crepes with it. You can make blinis with it. You can make pancakes with it. We use it quite a lot. And there's two varieties. There's the traditional, like, slate gray variety, which is a little bit stronger. And then there's a highly refined white variety called Acadian buckwheat. It's produced, at least around here, it's coming out of Maine. And the first time I ever had something that was made with this Acadian buckwheat, I wanted to send it back because I was certain I was about to be poisoned. It didn't have any of the grit. It didn't have any of the sponginess that buckwheat can sometimes have, too. I just think it's a great example of a culinary tradition that is entirely gluten-free, and you're not asking the foods to be something that they're not, and I love them. It also works great with maple syrup, which we have a lot of here. On Canelli Vanille, you'll find a video for a buckwheat galette. A galette is a free-form pie of sorts, where a pan is not required. The pastry is rolled, the filling is spooned on, then the edges are flopped over the filling, no pastry cutters required. The filling is rhubarb and raspberries in the video. It's instructional and clear, taking the viewer through the tricks of making gluten-free pastry. But that soft Seattle light is there, the nutty brown buckwheat flour, the yellow butter that Aaron loves so much, the colorful fruit, and the free-form beauty that comes from a galette. Order within the disorder. Perhaps that's Aaron's silver lining in all of this. When you take all that training in the kitchen, the precision, and add a sprinkling of emotion through photography, art is created and connection. There's only a way to convey emotion through imperfection. When I teach workshops, I always say, it's like that friend that you have that everything's perfect. It's very hard to relate to when there's so much perfection, there's no entryway for you to interact with that person. And it's the same thing with photography. The imperfection is the way into an emotion and the, and the connection. My friend Andrea once told me that women can only truly become friends if they're vulnerable with each other. I've thought of this often and I think it's true. Vulnerability is that soft crack that opens just enough to let others in. I wonder if Aaron's illness, for a woman surrounded by precision, allowed for vulnerability, for imperfection, a little messiness. Because without the mess, where's the story? That's an open window, I'd say. Aaron doesn't like to romanticize things too much, but really, there's emotion everywhere in her work. A quick scroll through her beautiful Instagram feed says it all. A story unfolds as you go. A story of food, family, friends, local art, and home. And then there's the Pacific Northwest, that gray palette with touches of evergreen, soft blues, and shades of white. Her food reflects this palette. It's all so soothing and evocative, with a touch of edge, a little bit of darkness. You can almost hear the waves in the foghorn. She says these sounds permeate her studio as well. I was in Copenhagen recently and I walked into the super hipster coffee shop and Handel was playing. I love Handel. All the music that I listen to, there's this sort of drone effect that happens that it's almost hypnotic. Whether it's with a guitar or it's a violin, there's sort of this sound of wind and ocean. If you were to boil it down to something, it would be that. And um, I think it's very Nordic because the Basque Country has a very Celtic influence. And I think there's that kind of music aspect to my upbringing. Rain and ocean and wind and forest. If you can translate that into music, then that's really like, there is kind of a, a drone. Anything that's a little hypnotic and that has a little melancholy to it. 
It's people like Aaron who have found beauty and flavor in their life, despite adversity, and have chosen to share it with the world. They are essential players for people like Paul. He says being diagnosed with celiac disease has nudged him out of his comfort zone and opened up windows or doors into new cuisines and to new cookbooks and blogs like Canal et Vanille. My first reaction to reading that, it's basically a, an online cookbook, first of all was that the, the photographs were beautiful. They were absolutely gorgeous. But once I got past the photographs and I started to read the recipes really closely, I thought, oh, here is somebody who has figured out how to beat the game, which is really the way that I've been referring to all of these dedicated cooks and bakers and, and chefs and people who are doing it on the weekends or people who are actually like, trying to make a business out of it, trying to do this alchemy of turning non-wheat grains into wheat. That's essentially what we're all trying to do. And I thought, wow, these look fantastic. And here is somebody who has beaten the game or is coming very close to beating the game. And one of the examples of that, I thought, was the gluten-free puff pastry. If you think about it, puff pastry is really the third rail for anybody who is trying to make gluten-free baked goods because you need that tensile strength. You need you know, what gluten gives you to have such thin layers that hold together and flake and crackle in the right ways. So I was really interested in that recipe. Of course, because it had been a very long time since I'd had anything like a tart when I saw the recipe for the tart of pears and, and or cheese, I thought, oh my, this is definitely something to work into the rotation. I mentioned earlier that Beck, Paul's wife, chose to also go gluten-free when Paul was diagnosed with celiac disease. Before that, she was an avid sourdough bread maker. It was a ritual, a ritual she had to say goodbye to. I couldn't help but think that his memoir is a bit of a love letter to her. Over time, I think it turned out to be a profoundly powerful decision because it really did bring us closer and we were in it together. We were comparing notes on complete and utter disasters in the kitchen and whenever we discovered something like a, a fresh pasta that actually tasted like real wheat pasta, we could celebrate over that together. I think we helped each other through it in a big way. All right, I have an exciting update. Recently, Aaron posted a photo on Instagram of the most beautiful, round, crusty loaf of gluten-free sourdough. She's been testing and testing and judging from the photo. It seems perfect. So Paul and Beck, are you ready? Sourdough is in your future. It might be a little different than before, but that's okay. We're learning that memories, they are actually a lot like recipes. They can't be replicated exactly every time. It's the making of the memories, the living, that's important. Artists call it trusting the process. And the messier that process is, the better. Because that's when we connect. Thanks to Erin Goyugoaga for sharing her story with me. And for opening up that extra spot in your workshop. You can find Aaron online at canalvanille.com. And thank you to Paul Graham for the chat and for writing that beautifully written, honest memoir. Find more about Paul and his book at inmemoryofbread.com. I'll have these links and more background stuff in the show notes. You can find them on my site at lindsaycameronwilson.ca forward slash the food podcast. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at the food podcast. 
And please sign up for my newsletter where I'll keep you up to date on podcast news and share backstories from the episodes. And sometimes there will be a recipe in there too. You can sign up at lindsaycameronwilson.ca. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 